Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Vince in the Bay podcast. My guest this episode is Patrick Knight. He's Senior Director of Cyber Strategy and Product Management at Variato. Did I get that right? Variato? Yes. Awesome. Thanks for joining me, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Patrick, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into cybersecurity and what you're doing now at Variato. Well, thanks, Vince, for having me. Um, my entire career has been in security in one fashion or another. I, I started out in national security uh, in uh, the military intelligence and the intelligence community in, uh, in general. Uh, Twelve years uh, I spent in that fashion before I even began my um, civilian commercial online security profession. Uh, so I, I really have to attribute uh, my, my current successes and my current career to my origins being in national security and in signals intelligence and working in the intelligence community in general. Uh, so I followed that path sort of unwittingly at many, at many moments, but it all has uh, sort of uh, given me a, a great uh, path to where I am right now. It has gone through a variety of stages, including actually developing uh, technologies as a software engineer to doing research for network intrusion, uh, anti-malware, and now finally in the insider threat space. So now you're, you're at uh, Variato, and uh, have, I, I read you just joined Variato recently, correct? Well, I've been there about a year and a half. What happened recently was um, after working more or less in the same role, but not in title, uh, our CEO asked me what I consider taking over the role of product management. And while I was also spending a lot of time working not just with the product, but also doing events like this, um, they didn't want to pull me away from this entirely as well. So we sort of created this new role. But it's large, largely what I do uh, on, uh, from day to day is in the product management role, which is what probably what you saw, which was just the change of title, which really signified sort of a change in focus for me. Okay. So today I wanted to speak with you about insider threats. Uh, your company, Variato, came out with a 2019 insider threat program maturity model report. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this report, it, it, it documents quite a, quite a bit about insider threat programs, which... I, that was kind of new to me. I didn't. I mean, I, I'm somewhat familiar with 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 the idea of insider threats, but it never occurred to me that there would be its own unique program within a regular cybersecurity infrastructure. So, before we get into the program, why don't we talk a little bit about insider threats first? What is an insider threat? Sure. So, largely, when an enterprise um, maps out its cybersecurity strategy, it is typically uh, foremost looking at how to prevent data breaches coming in from the outside. So you set up a firewall, you have your um, antivirus technologies, you might have network intrusion, and it's all designed to stop the malware and breaches coming in from the outside. And that has historically been where uh, uh, threats to the enterprise have been uh, placed. Now, when it comes to what we are the current landscape and talking about insider threats, in the old days, only government agencies had spies. They had people on the inside that might take stuff out and therefore needed some you know, monitoring and technology at a variety of levels uh, to identify and hopefully stop that. Uh, it's only been in recent years that more and more enterprises in the commercial non-government sector have also been identifying that this is a problem for them too. It's a huge concern. And there have been a lot of headlines just recently about problems that large organizations have had due to a trusted employee. So let me turn this around and say, what happens when, after you've already prepared and blocked, uh, uh, you've prepared for your ransomware attack and you've got your defenses for malware and other intrusions, but you hire Patrick to come in and you give him all the passwords and the keys to all the sensitive data, what's preventing me from copying it all to a flash stick or uploading it to a cloud share or anything and then, and then walking out the door with it? And that's, it, as, as um, rare as that may sound, it's really not. And it's becoming more and more of an issue. Again, recent headlines can, can uh, explain this. Um, and the expense of uh, an organization dealing with this 
can reach the millions of dollars. Um, we had, uh, there was a, a headline uh, in recent years with a major um, uh, data storage uh, manufacturer that made hard drives. Well, one of their employees decided to take their um, uh, their uh, uh, blueprints and their, their proprietary information for how they did things and went to a competitor. Well, it was due to their insider threat program that they were able to actually identify what was taken and actually press charges. And that a particular company won a, I believe it was in the in the vicinity of three or five hundred million dollar uh, damages in court because they proved that the employee took the information. And that's a very extreme case, but it happens more and more. We're here in South Florida. We had a uh, company here also in South Florida uh, use our technology and it, within days they were they identified uh, one of their employees was stealing was able to press charges and for them they recovered i believe it was about a million and a half now for a small company a million and a half dollars of damages recovered is very significant and so it's just again and again the idea that someone that you've given access to your sensitive information could damage you uh, even accidentally uh, is becoming more and more of an issue. And and even if it's an accident, you know, it's not all about, you know, we use this term insider threat and, and we didn't coin that term. Sometimes it's just insider accident. But if you don't know the, the cause uh, and the who, then you don't know how to respond as an organization. If I, um, I may be one of these people who can't resist clicking on every link that I get in email and therefore, I might be the cause of uh, ransomware infection or any sort of other type of breach. Well, if just identifying my lack of education would be a significant improvement and in, in, uh, help an organization know where to target their training uh, and and maybe identify some, some extra controls to place around the things that I might have access to so that if I do it again, that I'm not compromising the entire network. Okay, so that that kind of brings me to my my next question, which is, what are the different types of insider threats? I think you you described one right there, where it's sort of non malicious, a, a non malicious insider who accidentally or unwittingly uh, makes or makes a mistake and uh, exposes the company's information. What about the the malicious insider? What what different types of malicious insiders are there? Sure. Well, there's a variety of types. So um, uh, just going off of uh, memory, you, you can imagine a few scenarios. So one would be disgruntled employee. They've, they feel they were passed for promotion or I'm better than this or I worked hard for this data. I'm going to walk out the doors and I'm going to take my data with me because it's mine. So you get a source of sort of a, an entitlement aspect to some uh, insider threats. Uh, anyone who may have underperformed and and maybe start feeling sorry for themselves um, could react in a negative way, and I, and I mean could because really what we want to also express is that sometimes the insider threat program is all is not just about laying the hammer down on an individual. It's identifying when an individual is struggling so that they don't become the larger threat. Um, you know, I could be the most productive and well-intentioned individual for th for years. And then maybe personal experiences, um, health issues, financial issues, relationships are now taking over my psyche. And what I wouldn't have thought or dreamt about doing a year ago, now maybe I'm, I'm desperate enough to do something very negative. Well, sometimes there are telltale signs that, this, that, that um, an individual may be going down this path that can be identified long before they really become an actual threat. So, and, and really wouldn't that be the, the preferred deterrence, which is, uh, you know, Patrick is, is you, we're used to him being very productive. Well, his online behaviors are showing something different now. Let's take a little step back and look at maybe ask HR to, to step in and maybe their counseling uh, benefits that we get through our, our uh, corporate benefits that he might be able to uh, uh, take advantage of. And so that things don't become a problem. And that's really what insider threat programs are about. So it's not just about responding once there's been a breach. It's real, really about a robust program to uh, protect the data that an organization is uh, either obligated to protect or their own proprietary information that if it walked out the door would be crippling to the organization. So, uh, so back to your question. There's, you know, there's an individual who may be going through personal issues. There's an individual who may have resentment towards his boss or other people at work. 
Um, let, let me talk about another one. There's a very real scenario in this world. Um, there was a recent, uh, there's actually been more than one <clears throat> headline recently about individuals who were planning to actually commit acts of violence. And they were caught because of the insider threat program uh, that was being used where they worked, identified that they were doing uh, research online to plan their attacks. And that's the last kind of uh, category that I would ever want to be uh, worried about it. But it, uh, un unfortunately, it is a very real concern in this day and age. We're here in South Florida. Uh, not uh, Last year, about just over a year ago, there was a mass shooting at a school. And we hear about mass shootings all the time in the news. When it happens in your back door, suddenly it becomes a very much more real than you than um than we normally think about it when it's just happening on the news. It's always somewhere else. Well, when it happens in your back door, now it becomes real. So the fact that some of these signs can be identified with technology and maybe uh, give a heads up before things go too bad, that's really where these insider threat programs can show their value, uh, protecting data and also protecting people. And so how exactly would you identify a threat like that? You said this person was researching <laughs> online how to commit violence. Now, was is, is that a situation where this person was doing research, uh, like was Googling stuff on, uh, on a company uh, computer company network and that was being monitored and they were able to catch them that way? Uh, yeah, and I don't know all the details because I'm getting this from public reports. Yeah. Um, so they, they often omit some of the details, only that it did, uh, the reports did reveal that this was uh, um, identified as a result of research being done on an, a uh, company computer. Actually, I think this may have been government, if memory serves me. I believe this had to do with a, um, uh, a military, possibly reserve unit, and I believe it was in one of the Carolinas. Um, but the uh, the... Uh, I believe it was a former military guy or a reserve guy who was also working as a contractor was using the the uh, monitored system to be uh, doing research to identify targets, and they were they were planning on planning to uh, attack several different targets that way. So how is this done? It typically is done best by monitoring the activities of the user on the endpoint, not on the network, not at the gateway, not at the firewall but where the activity is actually occurring, which is on the endpoint. And that way you can actually uh, see when the user is uh, searching for, uh, let's say, for example, using uh, terms that are typically associated with violence or, or uh, um, any sort of uh, discrimination or uh, fraud. There, there are a lot of, there's a variety of types of threats. Um, we, again, we, we may refer to the term insider threat, but another organization may call it anti-fraud particularly if they're, for example, in the financial industry. So it's sort of uh, different terms to describe the same goal, which is how do you protect the data uh, or, in some cases, unfortunately, also people. Uh, so it's done typically and best by uh, monitoring activities on the endpoint. I feel like there's there, there, there could be other types of malicious insiders, like someone that's maybe been coerced through like blackmail or bribed. You hear about sextortion and, sure. and extorting people. Um, and, uh, and I also feel like, you know, you can also have people who are from the outside who come in and pose or like imposters, like, you know, or, or, or pose as an insider. How would you find someone like that? How would you detect someone that's either being blackmailed or somebody that's a complete imposter? Sure. When, when someone comes out, uh, comes into the organization, uh, there's a lot that you may not know. Uh, however, if you, if you do read through the report that we created, the Insider Threat uh, Program Maturity Model, <clears throat> I believe it was on one of the last pages. We actually give 10 recommendations for things to do when standing up your Insider Threat Program. And one of those items has to do with uh, giving your HR department more tools to help uh, filter um, and do research for candidates uh, before they even walk through the door. Uh, it's, it, wouldn't it be better to prevent a, um, an insider uh, threat uh, by not letting them through the doors to begin with? So part of your, the answer to your question has to do with what tools can we use to identify uh, an individual's history and associations uh, before they're given the keys to the castle of all the data that, that you may have available to you. Um, that's, that's one thing you can do. Another goes back to what I, what I uh, mentioned a moment ago, which has to do with uh, monitoring the activities uh, that they um, perform 
while using uh, uh, corporate uh, devices, corporate assets. And we actually have a couple of modes in our technology. Uh, one is straight user activity monitoring, which literally gets down to the low level of <clears throat> identifying uh, keywords, for example, that might signify acts of violence or acts of fraud or uh, otherwise uh, some sort of threat. But there's also our machine learning uh, capabilities that we also provide. We call it user and entity behavior analytics. It is a term that was, I believe, uh, generated by Gartner, the um, uh, uh, industry uh, uh, analysts. Um, but what it means is looking for patterns over time. So another another uh, uh, area to look at not is not just what I'm doing right now, but how have my behaviors changed over time? And we all should be expected to grow somewhat, and we all have ups and downs. But if we see significant changes in particular areas uh, that signify risk, uh, either in our in our own changes in our own behavior or just changes that show how we stand out from our peers, those could be uh, valuable insights to say, look, something's different here. Is Patrick really that good, or is he really that bad that his you know his score, his risk score, is so significantly different from his peers? So there's another way to look at it, which is just comparing my activities from those that I should be somewhat similar to. And if there's some dramatic difference, maybe there's something that we not, might need to look into a little bit more deeply. What's the catalyst for initiating some of these investigations or whatever into, into people like, OK, you, you said you talk about the warning signs and stuff like that. But let's say somebody's just acting a little bit different Do you, is the, and, and, and suspicious or whatever. Is that when you go and start checking out their social media or, or are people like or as part of the program, like always monitoring social media from for everybody in the company? I mean, even even for for like the 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 non-malicious, the accidental insider threats like I, I do. I do. I've done the uh, the social engineering capture the flag at DEF CON the last two years and they give us a target. It's a company and we're supposed to get flags, which is just like basic information about, you know, what uh, operating system they run, what sort of antivirus they're running. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, information that could, could be used as a pretext for an attacker. And uh, one of the things that I found that was really easy to obtain through research with social media posts, you know, people posting on inst posting their workstation on Instagram and stuff like that. And maybe that person is is leading a completely normal existence at the workplace, but they're, you know, taking selfies every once in a while in front of their workstation. Like, how do you get out in front of something like that? Well, that if they're doing it on a unmonitored device, uh, meaning a, a, a computer or a mobile device that doesn't have an insider threat technology running on it, then it would admittedly be very difficult. And that's where we typically advise and recommend that for corporate assets that all endpoints are monitored. And just make it part of your process. You know, tell your employees, look, you're, we're going to hire you. We need you to do this job. We're going to give you access to all this data. And it's critical that you help us protect that data. Anything that we've given you access to, you are part of the security solution. And so just be open and transparent with your with your employees that way. That way, it, it, it becomes a deterrence uh, for most people to even consider doing something malicious. And they would appreciate when their employers are also just being transparent with them. Look, you, you do your job, and if nothing happens, then, then this technology we might be using to monitor and protect that data just becomes something running in the background. And I myself uh, operated for about 12 years in the U.S. government where there was not a computer I didn't sit down and log on to that didn't have a login prompt that said, this is a Department of Defense system. All activities are subject to monitoring. And it was we were trained on it uh, annually. We knew it was part of the culture. And it didn't make us paranoid to walk into the doors. You respected what you were doing when you walked in the doors for sure. Uh, but, you know, we we really enjoyed the workplace and get and and we understood the ground rules. And that's what an insider thro threat program should be like. It should be a technology that is just yet another layer of security. And as long as everyone is productive and doing their jobs and getting along, then there's there's typically no need to be concerned. It is when that needle in the haystack uh, occur situation occurs 
that the technology layer must be there. So to your point, how do you identify these things? Well, it's going to be very hard if you're trying to do it as with a human being sitting down doing an investigation. If you don't have a robust technology that is telling you, look, here's the, the here's the activity you need to be concerned with. Everything else is fine. There, everything else is, is normal. Here's the problem that you need to look into. It could be exonerating. It could be a false alarm. Uh, it could be an accident. Whatever it is that you need, the technology needs to guide the investigator to the problem area so that it can be quickly resolved. And um, so I, I assume uh, bring your own device, B, was it BYOD, mm-hmm. that that would be, there would be some sort of policy <clears throat> in regards to that incorporated in these insider threat programs? Well, every program is going to be different. It's going to be unique to that organization. Uh, every every organization has different data or different focuses for what they consider is sensitive. Uh, if you're a financial organization, you're going to have different data than a healthcare organization, for example. And so, I would I, I would recommend just as a uh, security advisor to look at what assets you have and what does it mean to allow a uh, an unmonitored or an unsecured device onto your network that could potentially access that data. And once organizations can take a look at that and say, well, yeah, maybe BYOD might be a little risky or maybe segregated and have, if you just want to allow your employees to bring their devices so they can check their email or check their Facebook on their own personal device, give them a separate Wi-Fi network that they can do that on. Keep it separate from the sensitive data. There are ways to deal with that without, um, subverting your own network by allowing these uh, un- unprotected and unmonitored devices on your network. Okay. So it seems from, from looking at this report, it seems like the biggest obstacle uh, as far as imp- implementing these insider threat programs mm-hmm. is, is budget is money. Uh, it like this, uh, from what I, I would guess part, partly from looking from at this and just partly just, you know, by using logic is that smaller businesses that have, you know, less resources, they will be, and, and you, you, uh, on the report the it, they're broken down into five different categories. There's those that have a non-existent insider threat program. Those that have a reactive program, proactive program, predictive program, and optimized program. And, uh, and I would imagine that the smaller companies that with less of a budget probably have a non-existent or a reactive uh, program, whereas probably bigger enterprises have proactive, predictive and optimized uh, programs. Now, what can a small business do with very limited resources to implement an insider threat program? Well, so I'm glad you, you pointed that to. That's a great opening to talk about the maturity model. And just as a, a quick intro to it, um, if, if you are not familiar with the term maturity model, uh, we didn't coin that term. If you Googled maturity model, you'll hit on a variety of uh, maturity models out there for a variety of disciplines. Um, and they're all going to ha- have basically the same pattern, basically simplifying where are you in your maturity, uh, in your preparations, where is your program. So we decided to apply that same model to the insider threat program because when we uh, uh, decided to do this last year, uh, there wasn't one for insider threat programs specifically. So uh, again, following uh, the same model that you just described, um, the the first stage is non-existent. I mean, you don't even know that there's a problem. You don't even know there's a situation. In this case, uh, insider threats. Uh, you don't even know that there's a technology that that could uh, uh, help you. You don't. Even, you may not even realize you might have a risk. And I like to compare this, for example, to uh, ransomware uh, protection. So where where is your ransomware uh, maturity model? Where where is your program to pr- to protect your data from a ransomware attack? You don't want to be in the non-existent stage. You don't want to be unaware that there's even a risk out there. Uh, so uh, most organizations would. Uh, want to be more towards the optimized end of this spectrum when it comes to ransomware. And we're arguing that you need to be the same, you need to consider uh, the same seriousness to uh, the threats to your data uh, in any organization, big or small. So, um, and that's that's what this uh, study was designed to do, which was to identify these areas and then to bring attention to organizations to look at where are they in their their program development. Um, and, and ironically, in this, in this report, 
uh, this uh, this report is based on a survey we conducted, and we so we we surveyed uh, a variety of organizations, large and small. And one of the interesting bits of information we learned from this was that, uh, to your point, you would think that larger organizations are more prepared, and smaller organizations may be less prepared for an insider uh, breach due to an insider. Well, actually, ironically, our data showed it was pretty flat. There were large organizations that still had non-existent or reactive programs at best. And there were smaller organizations that did have some fairly robust for their needs. So uh, I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, uh, bit of uh, data to pull from this. It was contrary to my expectations as well. Another thing that the report um, shows, which I find kind of conflicting in a way, is, okay, so within organizations, you have a chart that says, uh, the different roles within organizations that support an insider threat program maturity model. And then you have uh, also you have here um, the percentage of organizational roles that are concerned about privacy. Mm-hmm. And so those that are uh, con- that that support the 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 program maturity model, IT is number one. The executives are number two or or close to number two with security. HR is right up there as well. Now you look over at the, those that are concerned with privacy and HR is also concerned with privacy. They're number one. IT is also concerned with privacy. They're number two. The executives are also concerned with privacy. How can these people, it sounds like they want their cake and they want to eat it too. They, they, they want to have a mature insider threat program, but they also want to preserve privacy. How can that happen? Right. So th- this actually pointed to one of the key takeaways uh, that I had from this report, which is if you're going to, uh, if you identify that you need an insider threat program, and we would argue that most organizations probably do in some form, uh, how do you start? And the, the first step, again, this points to, I think, one of the last uh, items in this report, is these 10 areas that we identified that you need to do if you're going to stand up a real, mature, and robust insider threat program for your organization. The first step is starting with getting executive buy-in. Once you have your senior level executives uh, in agreement that there is a threat that is worth protecting, and then, uh, once once you have their support, then now you have the support of getting a budget. Now you have the ability to get cross-organizational support, maybe identifying um, which teams and which organizations in your enterprise uh, might have a role in this program. It is not exclusive to any one area. Uh, you cannot expect that uh, for most organizations, particularly uh, the larger they get, that this would simply sit in the IT department. In fact, your security department is often not even associated with your IT department because of uh, basically uh, security and sensitivity issues. Uh, The IT department has its own job, and your security team may have a totally different one. Your insider threat program may also need to incorporate people from HR. You may have uh, corporate uh, legal assets that might might need to be a part of this. Uh, Other organizations may outsource theirs. So you have to identify uh, what... Uh, components in your organization um, may need to be a part of this program and starting from the top gets you that ability. So when I saw this data, to your point, why the difference here? Well, my assumption is that a lot of organizations aren't starting from the top down. They may be starting with one individual, maybe a CISO, maybe a security guy, maybe an IT guy saying, you know what, I need to look into this for our, our organization. Well, if once you start from the bottom up, then it may be a great idea, but you can expect some roadblocks if you then need to get some cooperation from another department who has no stake in this that they know of. But when you start from the top down, then I, uh, those different teams, whether it's HR, security, IT, or so forth, once they uh, get the, the edict from the top level, now it makes the, the cross-organizational cooperation much easier. So I, I suspect that the data that we were getting was pointing to the fact that not everyone starts this from the top down. Maybe they're starting from the bottom up. And you can still ultimately achieve your goals. It may just take longer or be harder. So that's why we recommend start from the top down. It will make a lot of this flow a lot easier. And getting your technology like that, which we we produce at Variato, um, 
is not the first step. We will help you if you call us and you're just starting out. You know, we'll help you get set up. But in the process, we're going to say, have you had a discussion with your uh, general counsel? What does your uh, senior executives uh, say about this and how are you going to work across teams? We're going to sort of prompt you to, to go the right direction in that process. But I, again, to your point, I think that the answer had to do with, uh, in a lot of cases, maybe this started at a different level. And the privacy concern, uh, if I can continue, that that topic alone is one that's very near and dear to my heart because I'm 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 not just uh, a security professional and currently in the insider threat industry, but I'm also a huge personal privacy advocate. And so the question is, how do you do an insider threat program in the modern age where uh, of um, data breach and data privacy and data protection regulations and just the general climate of uh, individuals? that are, are becoming more and more privacy concerned. And part of the answer goes back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, when you set up your insider threat program, set the expectations with your workforce. Uh, it can be done. You can still protect the data and also monitor activities. And if you're using, if you're on that more optimized end of your, your program, you're probably using a technology that also has sort of a machine learning uh, angle to it. It's not just recording you know, everything you type or every email you send, but it's looking for, it's using machine learning to look for changes that signify risk. And that itself can be a, uh, a privacy enhancer uh, so that I don't, you don't need to look at my data today if the signifiers show no uh, issue for concern. But if my, change, if my behaviors change tomorrow, then we can take a deeper look uh, and then protect the data of, of all those other individuals that I work with who are not showing problems. So there are a lot of really great privacy um, uh, topics that fall under this umbrella. And we have to address that in this day and age because uh, on the one hand, more and more organizations are being mandated to, um, to audit and to monitor all access to the data that they are uh, entrusted with. So take, for example, financial organizations or healthcare organizations. There are mandated regulations that those organizations must have some sort of investigation audit trail of the people that have been given the passwords and, and also trusted to handle that data. So that says a lot about where we are. So if, you're, if we're on the one hand required to uh, monitor or track the activities of anyone accessing that data who has legitimate access to it, uh, then how can you also do this and protect privacy? And so that's where a mature insider threat program comes in because you have to set up you know, expectations up front. You have to say what is acceptable use and what is not. If you tell your employees uh, you're going to handle the financial information of our customers, but you can also check your face, your personal Facebook accounts on the same device. You might want to relook at your policies and just see how can you segregate those activities which you want to allow your employees to use in the workforce, but how do you do it and keep it separate from the data that you're also trying to protect? And you might have to make some hard decisions, or you may simply need to set up different networks for them so that you can accommodate that. Uh, some organizations say absolutely no, no, no BYOD devices, for example, uh, and it's really up to the the um, the desires of the organization to make that decision for themselves. The flip side of the, you know, like I said, uh, it was you know the HR and IT and the executives were really on board with the insider threat program maturity model. They were also on board with privacy. Now, on the flip side of that, the finance people, they're against both. The finance people seem like they're the greatest blockers for the insider threat programs. They don't they don't want is it because they control the purse and the budget? And they're like, no, we don't we don't have the money for that. We don't want to you know, invest money in that, even though it's not their money. It's the company's money. Right. Uh, what what's what do you think the explanation is for the finance team being so against these programs? Well, I think that's exactly it. I think you, you, you hit on it, which is they control the money and, and it, they probably have no idea the, uh, the risk impacts. They're not security people. They're financial people. So they're, they're looking after the bottom line of the company. So I think they're, they're um, wired to say no to any kind of expenses. They're, you know, we have a finance organization. Anytime I travel, every expense that I have is going to be scrutinized. You know, did I need to, you know, maximize my... Uh, uh, my budget, uh, am, am I am I spending the com company's money wisely? Um, so, and th that's that's fine. That's their job, and they they set the expectations for me as an employee. 
what are the limits and and uh, and and we have a, a corporate culture where we want to respect that and our, our comes from our CEO on down who he himself has a, a long uh, uh, history of uh, being in the financial uh, aspect of business so he appreciates expenses and obviously he pays our bills so he sees the numbers and, and he wants us all to be uh, good stewards of that budget and so I get that and I think that's that's ingrained in most financial organization or most uh, financial teams rather of an organization um, and so I don't think that it means anything specific against insider threat programs but it does say something again that points back to getting that support from the top because if the the uh, the chief level officers and the the, the CEO uh, the president of the company if they say yes we need this then they will change their tune, I'm sure. Very, they, they might say, well, okay, let's look at it and make sure we're spending the money wisely. And that's a, that's a natural reaction, I would hope and expect for that. Um, but that's where uh, that I think that changes um, a lot of people's minds and hearts when it comes from the top. Um, okay, there's one page here on communications. And uh, when a threat is detected, it, it makes it seem like internal communications change from informal to formal communications what explain that to me what what's the difference between informal and formal communications and what are they what does that mean in relation to the insider threat program model well as part of your security response you need to have a a, a formal uh, process set up for how you are going to deal with a threat or a, a uh, an incident so not all incidents may result in actions that may be a, a false alarm uh, it could be some other issue but you need to have a formal manner of how you deal with this and it is not a um, broadcast to the world it is a it is a process by which uh, for this situation I must contact HR for that situation I must contact our security team uh, we may you may have an organization where some where there's activity that's actually illegal um, where law enforcement may need to be called in. So you need to have a formal process for how you trigger these, uh, these communications um, so that people aren't guessing, so that you have a quick response. And so this, this is what we're identifying is you need to think through the scenarios that are going to be relative to your organization and how to respond. So going back to the one examples I gave earlier uh, with a uh, company here in South Florida that was using our technology they were relatively small, I believe. I don't know that factually. I think they were probably under 100 uh, employees. So they were fairly small, but they used our technology. And they had to call law enforcement. And that law enforcement saw the evidence that we had collected with our technology and, um, and were able to press charges. So they had, to, they had to figure out for themselves pretty quickly, how do you deal with this? So we try to advise, you know, as, as a result of setting up a program, it's more of a formal process for what do you do if A happens? What do you do if B happens? Um, and that way you can have sort of informal discussions uh, when there's not an incident at hand. But once there is an incident, all right, now who needs to be involved? You don't need to tell everyone uh, because, you know, again, depending on the structure and size of the organization, uh, HR may have one role, uh, legal may have another. Uh, sometimes they may require multiple uh, organizations to be involved but maybe not necessarily all of them so that really we're just we're trying to guide uh, organizations to say what have you figured out based on your organization structure who needs to be part of that process and when and never tell carol in accounting she's got the biggest mouth in the office <laughs> there's always she's probably not part of the program <laughs> yeah she's she she should be part of the program there's always that one person and it's 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 always accounting too for some reason anyway one, one other thing that I, I i'm curious about is how about corporate espionage how does that figure into all this because uh, china is a is a hot thing right now really they're so hot right now um, and they they are sneaky. They, you know, they don't they're not like your typical spies. They will send kids over here to go to school 
and go through the school system here, get jobs, and they're not even spies. They're just they, they're just you know Chinese nationals. And then over the course of time, they you know the Chinese kind of play this long game where they get they get people embedded in universities and corporations. And then when those people come come back home to visit, they get incentivized or whatever to share you know, whether it's trade secrets or or, or whatever. How how can uh, an insider threat program detect that type of corporate espionage? Do you just like keep tabs on all the Chinese nationals like or, or, or how would that work? Well, that's a great question. Actually, you're, you're going to uh, uh, allow me to sort of harken back to my my early earlier stage of my career when I was in uh, the intelligence community. Uh, first off, it's not just China, although they are quite huge and, and well known to uh, uh, be uh, uh, performing some of the activities that you just described. Um, there's also, uh, to a, a large extent, um, people from the former Soviet Union, um, and uh, I would argue also Israel. And there are a few other countries that probably uh, would fit into, under this umbrella as well. And I think it falls under a sort of a larger issue of nationalism and uh, some sort of devotion back to your origins where even if you changed uh, borders as an individual, you still have loyalties. And if you can ever use those loyalties uh, to benefit your origins, then you'll do so. And we see this a lot in Russia as well, probably slightly different, maybe not so much as in the in the corporate espionage uh, model, although I'm sure it happens more than, than uh, we're, we hear about. Um, but it does happen, especially when it comes to hacking. Uh, they consider Western and particular U.S. targets uh, uh, as a trophy if they can penetrate. And so it doesn't actually have to necessarily originate from a, a uh, dictated uh, Russian government um, action that... Uh, Sergey hacked a, uh, a server uh, from a manufacturing company in, in the U.S. However, if Sergey in, in Russia hacks a server in a manufacturing company in the U.S. and steals data, that becomes a trophy that, it, in, in, you have to understand in Russian culture, in, in, uh, especially in the Russian legal system, it is not illegal for them to hack external targets. So the fact that Sergey may do this is totally unenforceable, not, it is completely protected by Russian government. So you, you have that, uh, at least from an external threat, but other con uh, countries may, may be a little bit more uh, towards what you're describing, which is the insider. So we get a lot of immigrants here in the U.S., um, and I'm not trying to disparage immigrants. I'm certainly not trying to uh, in, in, uh, insinuate that um, uh, because you're from one country or another that you must be untrustworthy as an individual. Uh, but you're right, it does happen. So what do you do? Well, this it goes back to st in, in what I've been describing, which is standing up a mature insider threat program, which means monitoring the data that you need to protect and making sure that those who have access to it are handling it appropriately. And if they're copying it to locations that they should not, like personal devices, USB devices, cloud shares, then you need to know that. And that's where a technology as part of your insider threat program, uh, like which uh, Variato creates, uh, can help identify that so you get those signs. Um, I believe there was uh, yet again another headline or two, and they're frequent, uh, but I think it was uh, a, um, in this particular case, I think it was a recent headline regarding a, uh, a former Chinese citizen employee of a U.S. company, and um, my apologies, I forget off the top of my head this particular example, only that it's fairly timely, um, and it does happen. And so well, how, what do you do? You may not know their, their um, uh, motivations up front, although an investigation might be able to identify that, uh, but you can certainly monitor their actions and alert to the fact that, hey, they're taking data out of uh, the enterprise, they're, and, it's, and the egress channel is... Uh, through the browser or through a, an external storage device or whatever. And again, that's where the technology, excuse me, that's where the technology as part of your insider threat program will help identify that. Great. Anything else that you'd like to touch on in regards to this, this report or just insider threats in general? Well, I want to go back to a couple of points if we can. Uh, we were discussing uh, the privacy concerns uh, at the different stages of a mature 
uh, insider threat program. Uh, and one of the things that our study identified was that the more towards the optimized end of the spectrum organizations were in their insider threat uh, program, uh, the less concerned they were about privacy. And if you look at that part of the report, um, you know, the first stage, again, is non-existent, meaning you're not even aware that there is a problem. You don't have a program. It is non-existent. Uh, there is also no, you know, little to no privacy concerns when you're at that stage because they wouldn't be relevant. Now, the second stage is reactive, mean, meaning that you only do something when there is an incident and you're unprepared and you're just struggling to deal with the, the uh, situation. Once you get to that third stage, the proactive stage, that's where you're really starting to say, look, we need a program here. It might be a tool. Um, we may not know who all in the organization is going to be part of that program, but we know we have to do something. So that's really where uh, the real formation of a insider threat program starts, in my opinion. And and naturally, that's also where you get the greatest concerns over privacy. Why? Because everything is new at this stage. You don't know uh, all the 10 areas or more that you may need to consider when standing up your program. So you're asking those questions, well, what, what does this mean for uh, what our employees are going to think about us if we're monitoring? So there are natural concerns here at this stage. Well, now as you progress more towards the optimized stage, those concerns drop. And, and the reason is, is because you've answered the questions. It's not because privacy is not a concern. It is, and it should be on folks' minds. Uh, and it is also extremely po possible to have an insider threat program uh, in your organization and respect privacy of your employees. When you're starting out, you may not know how that works. And so naturally, there's a higher interest in, in concern uh, with privacy. But the more you've actually formulated your program, you've figured out all the moving parts, you know how to respond, you know what data to protect, you know how you're going to protect it, and you've, you've got your onboarding training and your annual training and your employees know what to expect, then your, your privacy concerns drop a lot because you've dealt with it. And that's the big takeaway for that for me is that if you're just uh, floundering around, uh, then there are going to be a lot of questions. But once you've actually sat through and thought it through and worked out the policies and things, then it will work more more easily for your organization. Okay. All right. I, I kind of feel like people just accepting the fact that they don't have privacy. They're, they're not worried about it because they're like, we have no privacy, so we mm -hmm. can't really worry about it, right? Well, no, I don't think that that is the world we want to live in, and that's, that's not the world that we should uh, be promoting. Uh, so our technology, for example, we're finding new and better ways to filter data uh, that may be irrelevant. And then this is part of uh, the overall umbrella of privacy. So think, for example, uh, the, um, the industries that have regulations over protecting data. They also have regulations over uh, storing too much data. So if you're a financial organization, you have protections that you're required to hold for how you're holding that financial information for your customers. Well, if you've got an insider threat program also running alongside that, then that insider threat program may incidentally be collecting some of that same data residual to following the behaviors of the employee that's accessing that data. So as part of you know helping our customers be compliant, we look for greater ways to filter that out so that we're not storing that same data and just sticking to what's relevant to the, uh, the actions of the, the, um, the employee so that if there is fraud or a breach uh, occurring, we still give the relative information while not incidentally storing that uh, healthcare information or those credit card numbers, for example, that um, uh, that the organization is trying to protect otherwise. So privacy has got to be part of the discussion. Uh, and and I, don't, I would never, uh, I, I hope we don't live in a world, and I don't want to live in a world where we've given up on it either. But we've got to answer these tough questions over how do you stop breaches that occur from the activities of human beings when 99% of your employees are probably fine and trustworthy and everyone's doing a really good job but you do have that one or two uh, that may be subverting the entire network. And so that's the, the nature of an insider threat program is to find the needle in a haystack and then let everyone else go about their business and all privacy and, and, uh, uh, is protected. Good answer. Okay. Uh, before we wrap this up here, Patrick Knight, of course, 
uh, Senior Director of Cyber Strategy and Product Management at Oh, Variato. I wasn't. I wasn't going to say Variato. I was going to say <clears throat> Variato. But uh, thank you for catching me. I appreciate that. Okay, Patrick. What is your one pet peeve about the cybersecurity industry? The cybersecurity industry is trying to fill a hole that is created by fundamentally vulnerable platforms, and they've been, they've been fighting this losing battle because they've been outnumbered and outfinanced for decades because the online criminal uh, industry, and it is now an industry for sure, uh, is better financed, better armed. They share information that's critical and they sell the resulting product on the internet and the dark web as a commodity. And this cycle never ends and the odds have been in their favor for decades. Um, The online security industry has been trying and failing for decades uh, simply because they're outgunned. Um, so it's it's less of a criticism except to say that you know, you've got an industry that is comprised of dozens of major players and, and probably overall hundreds of major and minor players alone. <clears throat> Each one individually is trying to save the world and they cannot. And when you have the entire world uh, that is armed to defeat you. And so probably if I had a genie, I would say that if there was a better way to collectively put all these guys together who are all well-intentioned and trying to solve the same problem to somehow spread it out so that they can have a better chance collectively of defeating um, this or, this uh, online criminal industry, then that would probably be the most ideal solution. I don't think it's realistic, <clears throat> but it is it is simply a, a numbers game. It is it is that organizations that are trying to do this in a commercial sense and sell a security product cannot solve all the world's um, vulnerabilities when it comes to online threats. And then that's but but yet at the same time they are expected to do so. So it's sort of an un, unfair and unrealistic expectation. Uh, for what we expect from an online security company, and the odds are simply against them. Um, so it, I don't know that it is a criticism of them, except just a, a, um, a sobering re, uh, understanding of how complicated the problem is. And it's not just a problem, because it's unfair to say online security or cyber security. There's so many vectors that must be considered. Um, and again, the the technology that's being um, uh, attempted to fix the problem and you can pick whatever security vendor you're, you that comes to mind they are operating they're trying to 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 plug the holes of a fundamentally insecure platform whatever that platform is whether it's windows or whether it's uh, another operating system um, they are at the behest of whatever um, capabilities that operating system gives them and no more. So until we figure out how to change our computing model, um, it is going to remain insecure and it has been insecure now for decades. Um, So that's just a sobering understanding of where we are and why online security uh, companies are still so active and they still haven't solved the problem. The, The problem keeps changing. The goalposts constantly change and that's why this uh, online cyber, you know, the uh, the criminal uh, online industry, um, they know this and they they use it to their advantage. And they're they they're again they're they're better financed, they're better educated, um, and they know how to defeat uh, in most cases online security. Uh, most online security. The reason you hear uh, continue to hear headline after headline of a ransomware attack, it's not that those organizations were not running an anti malware program. They did. It's just a new variant got through that was undetected, and that is the constant game that, that anti-malware and endpoint security has been playing for decades. It's sort of, a, uh, in most cases, a, um, a reactive type of a solution. In, in, in every attempt they try to make it being proactive, uh, the bad guys always get the upper hand still and, um, and still continue to win. So, again, it's just a a sobering understanding of of how difficult the challenge is. And until we fundamentally change our computing model 
so that the platform itself is not the the major vulnerability, then I don't see this really changing in any way anytime soon. Okay. Uh, the flip side of that, what do you love most about the cybersecurity industry? Well, I'm a computer geek at heart. I mean, I just love technology. And um, it is unfortunate that when I see new techniques and new tactics committed by uh, the bad guys that shines a light on any, any type of hole in, in security, whether it's a vulnerability in an application or an uh, operating system or just someone's uh, defenses were inadequate and it becomes a headline, uh, the, the computer geek in me just kicks in and I, I eat it up because I want to know more. I constantly learn, and I'm one individual, so I, I would be the, the last person in the world to expect that I could solve all the world's problems uh, when it comes to the, the uh, online uh, criminal industry. Uh, but that's because they have way more numbers than, than, than I have. And uh, so I, I, I constantly learn from it. And I think what it's done for me personally in recent years is made me appreciate online privacy more. So like I said earlier, um, while my, you know, my day job is, is fighting uh, for ins- against insider threats, I'm still deep at heart someone who looks for ways to advocate uh, personal privacy online, which is probably itself an impossible task as well. It's, it's, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be um, idealistic here. It, it is not. When you when we talk about data that's stored, even if it's uh, encrypted with the strongest encryption today, eventually uh, encryption keys will be broken. Eventually technology will catch up, and if there's no fundamental vulnerability in your encryption, eventually computers will, will catch up to where it will not be infeasible to crack your keys. So whatever we think is secure today eventually will not be. What do you think is private today eventually will not be. And that is the constant um, uh, cat and mouse game that we're playing is whatever we even think and can imagine our, our greatest defenses are today, uh, just give it time. It, be, it may be years, it may be weeks before that itself is subverted and then we have to start over and rethink how can we do computing in the 21st century that is secure and that is also uh, protects your privacy. That sort of leads into my next question, which is where do you see the cybersecurity industry in five years? What's it going to look like? Well, you know, if you'd asked me this about any other topic like politics five years ago, I would have said, well, it can't possibly get any worse than this. And yet it does. So um, data breaches are not getting smaller. They're getting bigger. You don't hear of a data breach that affected 100 users. Sure, it happens all the time, but you don't hear about it. Why? Because there's too many. It's more sensational to hear about the data breach that affected 147 million or you know, that was the reference to Equifax from a couple of years ago uh, or any other breach. It's, it's the fact that in this day and age, you can collect massive amounts of data on millions of individuals. And all it takes is one breach and that data is out there and everyone's compromised. So uh, and that's not going away. Those are getting greater and greater because technology is making it easier and easier for even the smallest organizations to amass mountains of information on consumers, on people, on data. And that data is a commodity that is sold uh, uh, for a premium on the Internet in these criminal uh, networks, uh, sometimes and more and more these days on the dark web. Uh, they don't even they steal it and they don't even look at it. They don't even care. They just know, all right, I've got you know personal information for a hundred million users. Who's the biggest buyer? And they'll sell it on the you know it's an auction on the black market. Um, that's not going away because it's too lucrative. So where do I see this going? It is going to continue getting bigger, and there's not going to be a stop to it by law enforcement nor governments. What governments and law enforcement are doing is they are holding organizations accountable more and more that are amassing that data before it becomes a breach. And I expect we're going to see more and more legislation that is going to uh, levy uh, heavier fines. Um, Right now, many of the data protection regulations that we're seeing, uh, there's no guarantee of what the maximum penalty will be there there is a defined penalty in some cases other cases there is not 
uh, there's a, a warning or, you know, in the, here in the U.S., we do this by state. We don't really have a federal level data protection um, piece of legislation similar to GDPR, for example, or similar to what Canada recently passed. Um, so in, in, in many cases, we let our states determine for themselves if there's going to be a penalty at all. And I can almost guarantee you there will not be. You know, what state attorney general wants to punish their uh, businesses in their state with big, big fines. They're California, just gonna, California wants to do it. They're, you're we, right. We, we, they're we did it. We did it. Businesses then to do business in that state if that's the case. And if you're in a, a lower income state, you know those businesses don't have the kind of money to pony up uh, for a to pay for a breach, or you know if they were found um, uh, that they they did not comply. Uh, much less have the money to to invest in the types of cybersecurity protections that they should probably have been employing to begin with. So we're talking about enormous expenses uh, and very difficult to, um, and it's easy to go after the Facebooks and the Googles because they've got bukus of money. And that's all you're hearing currently coming out of the EU post-GDPR is Facebook and Google are, are primarily the targets there. Um, but what about smaller organizations who probably didn't have the funds to adequately protect or even the, the education or awareness to adequately, adequately protect to begin with? That's the problem with data now is that small organizations can still amass volumes of, you know, massive amounts of data, yet they may not even have the resources to protect it, to even understand the risk to it, much less pay penalties if there is a breach found. So this is where we're going is I think we're going to see more and more legislation that is going to hold organizations accountable. And it's got to get tighter if we expect anything to change because law enforcement and regulations are not going to fix the criminal side of what's going on. If that were the case, it would, any, any efforts there would have already shown any kind of um, impact today, and they have not. So the only other avenue they have is to go after the organizations that are that are collecting the data to hold them accountable for protecting it and and responding to if there is a breach. Okay. Final question. When will the robots take over? For some people not soon enough. I <laughs> I'm not a um when it comes to autonomous cars and the, the hopes and dreams of AI uh, that we're hearing in, in uh, headlines today, I'm still on the fence myself. You know, I, I think there are, there are contexts where um, machine learning uh, will solve some problems. I'm not ready yet to let it drive my car. But that's not, you know, maybe 20 years from now that, that may be different. Um, but uh, the robots are... Uh, there, in some cases, I think you would argue they're already here because there's a lot of, maybe not robots in, this, in the science fiction sense, but machine learning is becoming more and more an aspect of security. And you know, we leverage it. We leverage it to look for changes in behavior uh, using a data set that is identified as uh, signs of risk. That is our context. Um, I, in my previous, uh, earlier in my career, I worked at another uh, or company that used machine learning for a very different reason. And I got deep insights into how they were employing it. And I thought, well, that's a very good use of machine learning as well. So there are great contexts for where machine learning and AI make sense. Um, the problem for me is how bad does this go? Because we've seen the negative side as well. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna pick on Facebook again for a moment and the advertisers and the way that the online um, ma you know, massive data analysis and data analytics is, uh, industry is operating. They're finding greater ways to, to uh, associate data sets. <clears throat> so if you talk about an individual, it's not just your activities uh, with regard to maybe, maybe your online activities at work, but what if they correlated that also with your, your arrest records, your personal social media data that can also now be sold as a commodity in these uh, 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 social networking uh, technologies. Uh, what if they combine that with uh, your medical information? Imagine the, the uh, picture that they can paint of you with all these different inputs. Well, guess what? And some of them are already doing this. And you cannot undo that level of uh, invasiveness once it's done because there, you're, there's no control over 
how do I opt out of this? You cannot. I cannot opt out of Equifax collecting all of my financial information and giving me a score and selling that data to every financial organization that wants to buy it. So there's no opt out of this, this model. And that's what terrifies me with where we're going. So I think the robots are already here. Uh, and I don't see how we are even appreciating the scope of how bad this can be. Um, imagine if you suffered a, um, a bad credit issue. And I'm just going to narrow this back down to just one aspect of data collection. Uh, anyone can, can suffer you know, negative. What if it's identity theft that's damaged your credit? It's not even your fault. Cleaning that up is not a simple process. You actually have to go to th at least three major organizations uh, in the um, uh, credit rating industry to get them to clean it up. But that says nothing about who's also purchased that information from them. It, this, this social networking kind of a model that we've got with data um, collection on individuals is, is terrifying in its implications of, of not just how bad it is now, but how bad it can continue to be because this is no longer science fiction. This is actually happening and it's lucrative. Um, it, is, it is crack for those entities who have the money to buy it and to peddle it, and it is not going away. Cool. So I heard 20 years in there. So I'm, I'm gonna put, I got you down for 20 years, robots fully, t fully take over. Sadly, it may be sooner than that. Okay. 20 years or less, Patrick Knight. Got it. All right. Cool. I think we're good. Is, is there anything else you feel like you want to throw in there? Oh, you know, when you were asking at the very beginning about uh, how I got into computer science, I was going to make a, a comment about how I had to learn, like most of my generation, through doing. You, there was no uh, computer science program, much less computer security program at most um, universities in the 80s and 90s. That some of them were just forming. Um, but security was not even part of the curriculum. Well, now you have students going straight from high school into computer security, and yet they have no experience. And so I find it very interesting, and I, I'm curious myself to watch how this world evolves when you've got one generation like mine who learned through old-fashioned having to set up their own Unix systems and their own LANs and networks and, and fixing bugs and... and revealing just identifying just how full of holes operating systems have always been and you you put that against someone who has none of that experience they're just learning classroom security uh, i'm kind of curious to see where this lands myself in a generation um because you know we're not we're not requiring kids to work you know, through these problems like my generation had to do. So I, I, I thought of that right after, but we changed the topic. So, um, but watch where computer security ends uh, or where, how it lands, you know, in, in a generation compared to the generation that's been doing this now for a few decades. Perfect. Patrick Knight, Senior Director of Cyber Strategy and Product Management at Variato. Patrick, if anybody wants to uh, follow up on your work with Variato or you personally on the internet, uh, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter and in LinkedIn personally um, and professionally. Uh, you can also reach out to Variato. Uh, you can call us, go to variato.com and say, hey, I heard this guy Patrick talk. Can I speak with him? And I'm sure they'll be happy to direct you to me. And what's your Twitter handle? So it's my name, Patrick Knight 70. Okay. Patrick Knight 70. All right. Well, Patrick Knight 70, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me to talk about insider threats. I really appreciate it. And I really learned a lot from, from the conversation. It was a pleasure, Vince. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can find more information on this episode and past episodes at vinceinthebay.com. Subscribe to the podcast on any of the over 9,000 podcast applications and hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. Until next time, ciao.